I ask you to take your Bibles out and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, in a minute I'm going to read from James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And uh, if this is your first time here, my name's Colby, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to do what we do every week as we consider this topic of adoption and foster care. We're going to look into God's Word and uh, study it together and just let it speak to us. So hopefully you're there in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Beginning in verse 26, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Lord, we ask that as we study your word that you would grant us insight and openness to it. Lord, we pray that the word that dwells in us through the gospel, Lord, that we would have receptive and open hearts to as you seek to transform us continuously. Lord, we pray that even now you might give us ears to hear in a special way, not just to understand with our minds, but Lord, to rejoice with our heart and commit with our lives, Lord, to obedience in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So many churches throughout the country are celebrating Adoption Sunday uh, this week and thinking about vulnerable children. And I've thought about uh, sermons that I've heard over the years on challenging subjects uh, of poverty or service. Uh, and I've thought about some of the ways that we motivate one another, and I thought, you know, probably you're sitting here thinking, okay, this is uh, a monumental task, being an adoptive parent, being a foster parent, thinking about some of these issues feels like a monumental task that you're not sure that you're ready for or interested in, and so you might feel like disconnecting from what we're going to talk about, and the sort of things that go on often in these sermons is sometimes we use guilt, right? We kind of come to one another, we say, you know, if, if only you, if everybody was doing better, we could solve all of the world's problems. Uh, Jesus didn't seem to think that way necessarily. He said there would always be times where we had problems, but he did motivate his church to consider what it looked like for us to be his hands and feet and represent his body. But I'm going to make a commitment to you. I have no intention of using guilt to motivate you to consider this subject today. And some of you said amen. Uh, You know, there's other things I could do to motivate you, certainly sharing statistics. You've already heard one today, Uh, the number of uh, children in foster care in our system and statistics of churches in our county and what it might take to sort of meet the need. We can expand that and think about adoption and the need worldwide, Uh, and, and we could talk about a lot of those statistics and kind of wrap our heads around the reality. The truth is there is a need in our world, in our community, in our region, in our country for adoptive and fostering parents. Regardless of how you want to hear those statistics, it's very simply uh, the truth that we need that. And I'm not even going to bother to go into lots of statistics to try to motivate you. The other thing I could do is share a bunch of stories uh, about experiences people uh, have. But But the honest truth, if you talk to an adoptive parent or a foster parent, you'll realize that often our anecdotal stories are much more comp- that are much cleaner than the realities of being a foster parent or an adoptive parent. And uh, you know, today, 
instead of thinking about that, I thought it'd be better if I just gave you three reasons from God's word to become an advocate for orphans and distressed children. Now, now maybe as you're sitting here, you think our goal for a day like this is that every one of you would become an adoptive parent or a foster parent. And I just want to say up front, that is not our goal. So you can all take a big sigh of relief and sort of let that down and maybe open your hearts to how God might want to work in this conversation from his word in your life about what it would look like for our whole church and you individually to become an advocate for vulnerable children, an advocate for orphans and distressed kids, and you could take steps of of what it looks like in your life to begin that journey. Many people who become deeply involved begin with simple first steps that God invites them into. And for this reason, we shared those, uh, those suggestions up front for what we're going to say. We want a 100% response from you today about what it would look like for that. But in my main effort today for motivating you is that you would see from God's word why this is near to his heart. And so here in this passage, in James 1, 26 and 27, I think we have a passage that can help us wrap our head around why you should consider becoming an advocate for orphans and distressed children. And so I'm going to work us through these three reasons from this passage in hopes that you individually might be moved or inspired to do so, and so that we as a church can build a culture of advocacy for orphans and distressed children. So here's the first one. The first, the first reason I would give you is that it's a genuine form of imitation. Becoming an advocate for orphans and distressed children is a genuine form of imitation of God. You notice in the passage, he contrasts uh, what he calls impure religion or religion that is vain or worthless with something he calls pure religion. Well, religion that is pure imitates God the Father, he says. Religion that matters before God the Father has a certain look to it and a certain feel to it. True religion, true spirituality imitates God. That is what it does. We were created to be God's image bearers in a world that experiences the brokenness of sin and the the distress of the fall. And genuine spirituality seeks to really pattern our life after God, to imitate God by caring about the things that he repeatedly says he cares about. So the reason James identifies, and you notice this in the text, he says, beginning in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father looks like this. And so so if we're going to have a genuine spirituality as individuals or as a body of Christ, something that we could say is sincere, it's going to have a certain look if we consider what's true before God the Father. Now, the reason James identifies caring for orphans and widows in their distress with pure religion is because he's summarizing an emphasis that is found from cover to cover in the revelation of God's word. You notice, I mean, think about it. He he boils it down, and when he begins to talk about pure and undefiled religion, right at the bullseye of that is caring for vulnerable children. Now, granted, he does say some other things. He he talks about widows in their distress, avoiding worldliness. 
But one of the obvious categories he has here is caring for vulnerable children. Now, I think, I think for most of us, if we started getting, you know, we said, what's, what's at the heart of living out a pure religion? We probably wouldn't go there. James, though, does. And, and, and it made me ask the question, why does James do that? Well, I just went ahead and when, you know, I use the ESV Bible uh, org it's, it's like online if i'm working on a sermon i've got my paper bible open but that's where i do things like concordant searches and i thought you know i wonder what it says about the fatherless in the bible and i typed in the word fatherless and i was i was kind of amazed honestly just spending time over the past week reading all these passages throughout the bible where it mentions the fatherless it usually mentions them with with three categories that were to be concerned about the the fatherless uh, widows who can't care for themselves, and sojourners or refugees. This, this, it's like a triad in the Old Testament. It's shocking how often you see this group and how God's people are to care for them. But, um, you know, it's interesting. So I just started thinking about how does the Bible show us that this is repeatedly something that God expresses as close to his heart? And I just figured I'm going to run you through uh, that so that you can see that, that really caring for vulnerable children is imitation of God and true religion. Go ahead to the next slide. Just kind of run through some of these passages. We saw it in the passage we read this morning, Psalm 68, 5 and 6. It describes God as father of the fatherless. Here, in the midst of corporate worship of God, the psalmist has a repeated theme that shows up multiple times in the psalms. It's this celebration of the character of God, and he's not just saying that, that caring for the fatherless is something that God does, it's that it's deeply part of his identity. He is a fatherless, father of the fatherless, and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. You notice at the end of that, that phrase it says, this is what God is like, a father, father to the fatherless in his holy habitation. You know, I really wish it would have just used plainer language in the translation because that in his holy hab habitation means like God when he has, is in his dwelling. When God is at home, being who God is, he's a father to the fatherless. You know, who we are at home, in a sense, you could say, is, 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 is who we are most sincerely. You know, when we're not putting on any projection for anyone else around us and we're just in our habitation. And here the psalmist celebrates that God, when he's at home, just relaxing, resting, what is he like? And it's using imagery, right? He's a father to the fatherless. That's what he cares about. Psalm 146, verse 9 you know, you see it all throughout the Psalms. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Psalm 10, 14, but you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, he says of God, that you may take it into your hands to do something about it. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been a helper of the fatherless. This is the kind of worship that is going on in the Psalms. Now, the reason David is so clear to say this about God and about God's help for the fatherless in the Psalms is because God himself advocates continuously in the preceding giving of the law to his people in the Old Testament for the fatherless as a part of the instruction to his people before they go into the promised land. He gives them this instruction in Exodus 22, where he is advocating for the fatherless. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. 
If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. He even warns in that passage as it completes itself uh, of judgment on those who ignore it. In Deuteronomy, again, God himself is described as one who cares about justice for the fatherless. Recognizing that they haven't chosen this position for themselves, he calls for his people to react by providing what they should have had. That's what he means by justice here. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So God's instruction to his people in the promised land was that they were to to be concerned about vulnerable children, about the fatherless as a major concern, and he describes himself that way even in Deuteronomy. Later in the prophets, when God's people have gone astray, the people of Israel have now gone into idolatry, they failed to genuinely worship God, yet they keep up the ceremony of worship. God sends prophets to speak to them about what's wrong at the heart of their religious life. And it's seen in part in their lack of concern for the fatherless. The prophet Jeremiah, in challenging the people of Israel, says this in Jeremiah 5, 28. He says they've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless. They're not concerned about it, to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. At that time, many continued to practice outward rituals of religion, what we might call vain religion, in the temple of God. But God tells them actually in Isaiah chapter 1 to quit doing that. He says, I would rather you quit your outward rituals until you really realize what's at my heart. It's, actually, it's, it's, it's interesting. He says he wants them to do away with their outward displays. He would rather, what he would rather see is to, among other things, that they would bring justice to the fatherless. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, his instruction to them, after telling them to, that he's sick, he, he literally describes it as he's sick and tired of their worship services. And he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. To finish out what the Old Testament says, Malachi 3, 1 through 7, indicates that when the Messiah comes, when God would send his Savior, When the Messiah comes, we'll either be transformed by his refining fire into the image of God, people of sincere religious conviction, or we should expect judgment as those who have neglected his words. Listen to how that judgment is described. If you reject being refined by God's heart and God's image and an imitator of him, then I will draw near to you for judgment I will be a swift witness against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So listen, I want want you to hear this. So 
James, when he talks about pure religion, he's just echoing what the Old Testament for us, and maybe even more importantly, for, for you as an individual, for us as a church, as the people of God, it's a real path for experiencing transformation. Religion that is pure, James is going to show us, transforms us by calling us to challenging outward obediences. It's really interesting. Now, now to see this point, we're going to need to get inside what James is doing. So let's look closely here at the text. We need to get inside the argument James is making in this part of his letter to the churches. Look with me in the text. The statement here in verses 26 through 27 comes at the end of a longer passage that begins back in verse 21 with the word, therefore. So find that if, you're, if you've got James open or if you're on your phone. Here in verse 21... Let's have a look at how he sets us up, how this ends a section that is important to James. Beginning in verse 21, James is concerned with helping us do something important related to the gospel of Jesus. Here's what he wants to help us do. In his own words, he says that we need to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. So verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with, weakness, with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This, now, now listen, let's not, not move too quickly through here. This is James and his theology at work here. What is James doing? This is, this is James' theology on display, his theology of how the gospel transforms and changes us. And so we're going to look closely at that as we walk through. Let's think about it. Now, James is saying that the key for you and I to real transformation is for the word of the gospel that has been implanted in us at initial faith would, that brings genuine salvation that, that, that we would experience that salvation in our souls through an ongoing receptivity. So what he says is, here's how salvation works. The gospel is implanted in us by faith as we trust in Christ, but then we, we experience its transforming power as we remain receptive to that gospel word in us. As that gospel picture of who God is and what life is really about takes root in us and has been implanted in us by faith, it, 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 the goal is for that then to align everything else in our life, including our doing with that. And through that to transform us. Now, James is, James is pointing this out to us. So he's saying that the key to real transformation is for this word of the gospel that's been planted in us at initial faith to bring genuine salvation to our souls through ongoing receptivity. This is key for James. Salvation is both a gift given and implanted in us through faith and a transformation experienced. Now, I'm going to slow us down for a second. Salvation is a gift given through faith in Jesus and a transformation that we experience as that faith is worked out into reality. And he calls this whole thing the salvation of our souls. He's tying together the promise of salvation that is received, not because of our works, with the ongoing transformation of life that will help us appreciate what God has done 
for, through Jesus. So if I were to summarize verse 21 and, and help us understand, I would, I would summarize it by saying we are transformed by remaining receptive to what has been implanted in us through the gospel. Which begs the question, how do we remain receptive to it? So if you're, if you're a Christian here today and you've believed the gospel and you've received this promised word and it's in you and it's been implanted in you, how do you remain receptive so that it transforms your soul? Well, we don't have to wonder because James goes ahead and he answers that question in verses 22 through 25. One of the most famous sections of James explains the answer to that question. We remain receptive to the power and word of the gospel when we focus on being doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, that's kind of interesting. When we, when we decide to do what it instructs us and not just hear it, this is what James says it means for us to remain receptive to the word. When we do that in, in this manner, he says, then at the end of verse 25, he says real specifically, if we're doers of the word rather than hearers, not like those who see their face in a mirror and then forget what they look like, but those who hear the word, they see and they, and they do what the word says and they experience transformation and he ends it with a blessing in verse 25 and he says, we will be blessed by hearing, right? No. We will be blessed by believing. Is that what he says? No, it's interesting. He says something really specific. He says that receptivity and that transformation will bring a blessing, and it's, it's a blessing that comes by doing. We will be blessed by doing. That's, that, that's really Really interesting. Now, James is certainly not novel in saying this. Jesus himself says it at least twice. Once when someone in a crowd says, blessed is the one who gave birth to you, Jesus counters by saying, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In another instance, the biological family of Jesus is trying to get his attention and make sure he hasn't gone crazy because he has challenged the religious status quo. And Jesus elevates the status of his followers to a place of more significant familial identity than biological family when he says this in Luke 8.21. Jesus answered and said to them, My mother, who's Jesus' family? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is why James says here in verse 25 that once we've received this implanted word of God by faith in the gospel, we experience its transformational blessing by doing it. Okay, so we're almost there to what this has to do with adoption and foster care. So doing the word of God makes us receptive to what has been implanted in us through the gospel and, and brings on this transformation. So James ends the section by giving a few examples of things that we should practice doing in order to experience transformation. And he gives us three. The first one he gives us is we should bridle our tongue. If you get about the business of bridling your tongue, you're going to find yourself very dependent on God. And it's going to be transformative, Right? The last one is we should, we should keep ourselves unspotted from the world, that we should concern ourselves with holiness. But right smack in the middle is our topic for the day. We should visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. 
The doing that he's talking about that will have the transformative effect of bringing the gospel fully home to our lives. One of those things that, Jesus, that James chooses to emphasize is caring for the fatherless. Do you see that there? That means that being an advocate for vulnerable children is a transformative pathway for ordering our life around the gospel and we should not neglect doing it or we neglect a significant way in which God intends to transform us by it. So, religion that is pure transforms us. Interestingly, this isn't the only way we experience transformation. The word is implanted. Our ideas change. But he also says we experience change inwardly as we devote ourselves to important things of God outwardly as we do the work. So religion that is pure transforms us through these outward obediences like caring for the fatherless as we become advocates for orphans and distressed children. If you believe the gospel, do what the word says and you will grow in the direction God wants you to grow. Now, before we leave this topic this morning, let's not miss one more motivation. So that's two motivations. The first one is that we become genuine imitators of God. The second is that God uses our advocacy for the fatherless to transform us in our grasp of the gospel inwardly. The path to spiritual formation and transformation. But there's a third motivation that we see here in this, in this text and in the Bible as a whole is that it's an appropriate term of identification. Religion that is pure reminds us of our spiritual identity. Here is what I mean when I say that fatherless, orphan, adopted is an appropriate term of identification. I mean that adoption mirrors in physical reality what is substantially true for us in spiritual reality. Maybe you've never understood this. Let me say that again. It's an appropriate term of identification for us. Fatherless. Orphans. Received. Welcomed. This is our story. Adoption mirrors in physical reality what is true for all of us spiritually. We are urged to become advocates for fatherless children ultimately so that in their story we more clearly see our true identity in Christ. That through the distress of sin, through the distress of sin and the fall, we were orphans to the family of God. That's who we are. Listen. We had no father that could give us birth into the family of God because our fathers were spiritually dead like Adam and unable to do so. To grant us into spiritual life. At the fall in the garden and every day from there forward, we could be born physically, but we came into life spiritually dead because we were born among a spiritually dead people who were bankrupt to care for our deepest need. Every one of our parents, every father that has had a child, mother that has given birth, has been bankrupt to care for the most significant need that their children have ever had. And because of that, every one of us were born spiritually 
fatherless. Spiritually speaking, our parents and families could not meet our deepest need and will never be able to. If we were ever to have the hope of being made spiritually alive, we would need a different father. That's what the Bible teaches us. We would need to be brought into a different family. If, and if that family were like the families of the world, we would have a problem. But oh, I'm here to tell you today that you have an offer from a spiritual family. That father is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the weak. And in that family, there is a son, a son that didn't count his status as the truly begotten son, as something to hold on to, but came and visited us when we were spiritually lost and dead and without hope and destitute. And that son did not even spare his own life, but gave it up for us at the cross so that the effects of sin might be destroyed and we might through faith in his offer become sons and daughters of his heavenly father. And we're told that by faith in Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross, we receive the Holy Spirit, which the Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption in Romans 8, when it says in Romans 8, 15 and 16, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness through Jesus with our spirit that we are children of God. Spiritually alive and welcomed into a family we could have never given to ourselves. You see, advocacy for vulnerable children, for the fatherless, brings us face to face with the true reality of our lives and the true promise of the gospel. That God sought us out. That his son went into the highways and byways of life where we were destitute with no hope of giving us spiritual life. And he found us there. And through what he did on the cross, he brought us into his family. He made space around his table. He welcomes us to eat his food. And his body was broken so that we could be nourished. We are orphans. And we are welcomed because of the gospel of Jesus. But we are so prone to forget this identity, so James tells us we need to go and visit our family in a sense. So that we never forget. So I want to ask you today, with such an invitation from God to be born into a spiritual family by faith, have you responded to this good news and received its hope as a true gift that you could have never given to yourself, that you could have never made happen, but God prepared for you? If you've never turned from your sin and trusted this promise of the good news by faith, there's a family waiting for you. A father and a son who seek to welcome you no matter where you've been, what you've done, who you think you are. There's a new identity and a new hope that you can have if you'll believe this promise by faith. And if there's any motivation for us as Christians to care about the subject of fatherlessness, of vulnerable children, of caring for orphans and 
advocating for adoption and foster care, it's because we know who we are. We know who God is. And we've been lavishly welcomed into his family at a great cost. And he never asked us for anything except to come home. Now listen, church, I want to encourage you to take a step today. You know, sometimes it can be difficult when you talk about big and challenging subjects to imagine what it might look like for us to care deeply about the subject. But, you know, maybe just for a moment out of my personal experience, I can say, you know, when I first started thinking about the possibility of adoption or foster care, and I I have not actively fostered yet, um, all of it seemed kind of overwhelming. And uh, I wanted to be supportive of others, and that was a good, good spot. But uh, two years ago, when we uh, had this day, I personally made the commitment that we would go through the foster care class in the county, because I thought maybe that's the first step. No other commitments in going through that. You, next thing you know, you decide to finish a process, and it took us a very long time. And actually, this very week, we were approved to be able to foster in Prince William County. I don't actually know if we will actively do that or what the Lord is going to use that for, but we felt like it was, uh, it was an act of faithfulness to position ourselves where we could be prepared to do something as God brought it together. And so sometimes you just have to take steps. Sometimes you, gotta, you, you don't have to be so afraid where God might take you in it, but as you take the steps that God would have you take today, you find that it's a lot easier to get down the pathway to where he wants you to go. And so maybe today you need to take a step to position yourself for what God wants to do through this in the future. And there's a couple ways that we, we're just asking you to just take one step today towards that. You don't have to commit to being an adoptive parent or a foster parent. And maybe you won't in the future, but you can care for the people in this church who are doing that. We can, be, we can build a culture here where we love kids who have needs at different times in their life and we support families who take on difficult tasks and do things that require significant faith. And so we've shared four things with you and I'm just going to close before I pray and and I'm going to ask you to respond and tell you how you can. The first is that you would read an adoption and foster care book. Now we have three gospel-centered books on the table uh, at the back and today if that's what you want to do, today you can read uh, Orphanology, or Reframing Foster Care. Uh, There's another book back there. I can't remember uh, what it's called, but that's because it's not in my notes. But you can pick that book up, whatever it is, and take it with you and and just just commit to reading one of those books and be more informed. And that may be your first step, read an adoption and foster care book. The second one is that you would sign up to attend the county foster care training. Uh, You'd make a step um, like we did last January and get... Make sure you register and find out where that is. We'll help you connect with that if that's what you want to do. We'll be sending out information via email this week. Go ahead and take the foster care class to become trained. If nothing else, I'll tell you, it it will really help you understand uh, the needs of kids and grow in your sense of uh, what's going on in our community, grow in appreciation for some of the effort that is going on through those who serve in this area in our community, but you could attend the county foster care training, either in Prince William or in Stafford County. Number three, 
Give to the Adoption Foster Care Fund. We have a fund that is set up that our church uses, as we've mentioned many times, to support adoptive families and foster parents and uh, the foster program. And today, I'm just going to tell you right now how you can do that. The way that you can do that is you can take out your phone, and you can put the number 97,000 in there where the phone number goes like we do all the time. And the keyword for today is adoption. You just put adoption in there, send the text. It's going to shoot you back a link where you can, uh, you can hit that link and directly give to our adoption and foster care fund as a way of supporting it financially. And then fourth, you can decide today uh, that you will serve at the foster parent banquet in the spring. As those um, details become more available, we'll be putting together a team and preparing to uh, bless foster families uh, in the spring uh, here in Prince William County. And so read, attend the county uh, training, give to the adoption fund, and commit to serve the foster parent banquet in the spring. Those are our options. These are the opportunities that you have to respond and maybe other ways that God is working in your heart but I would encourage you to take these things prayerfully before the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for today and for your deep abiding love for us. We thank you that when we were without hope, you sent Jesus to pursue us and to bring us into your family. Lord, we pray that you would move us today in a special way, Lord, to respond to your word. Lord, and that you would continue to build in our lives and here at Pillar just a culture of advocacy and love for vulnerable children. Lord, we ask that your spirit might take what we've heard and give us courage and hope and faith to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there 